Well, good morning. It's great to see you. I like you guys. Uh, go ahead and <clears throat> turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We're going to read the Christmas passage again, at least part of it. And then after that, you're going to want to turn over to Ephesians 2, where we will actually be spending most of our time this morning. So we're going to read Luke 2. We're going to light some candles. We're going to read Ephesians 2 and have ourselves some preaching. Sound good? Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Jesus, we want your peace. We accept the gift that you've given us. You've said, peace be unto you. We say, okay, we'll take it. Give us a deeper understanding of this peace, a realization of it in the person of Jesus Christ and nowhere else. Amen. So today is the last Sunday of Advent, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Um, traditionally, at least in some traditions, and one that we're borrowing this week is set aside to consider peace. Uh, the final candle in the Advent wreath up here is for peace, so I'm going to see if I can light four candles with one match. Sound good? In order. Yeah, it's around. Like I've done this before. I really shouldn't reach over the fire, huh? It's probably not the... Yeah, you guys are some of the weirdest people I know, for sure. Um, on Christmas Day, we'll, we'll light uh, the white candle, the center candle, which is called the Christ candle. Um, so today we're talking about peace, not because it's our, our, our idea, but because the angels brought this message to the shepherds, peace on earth. And it's a... It's a common Christmas theme, right? Peace shows up on the Christmas cards and everything. So <clears throat> I'm studying for this message, you know, in the beginning stages of studying. And I, you know, Google the theological bastion that you go to for all your commentary needs. You're like, Christmas peace. Okay, what's Christmas peace? Well, I, I, I discovered something called the Christmas peace. And it's not that thing in World War I where everybody got along for one day between killing each other. Super weird. But that's called the Christmas truce. No, uh, there's something else called the Christmas peace, and it's a law that existed in one form or another since the 13th century, first in Sweden and then in Finland, okay? This is the Christmas peace. It's basically like this. It's beautiful. You'll love it. If you commit a crime on Christmas, we're going to throw the book at you. That's the Christmas peace. 
way harsher punishments, everything we can. We're pulling out all the stops. You just ruined our Christmas. Why do, why do you got to mess up Christmas for everybody, man? Just stay home and then go on your crime spree tomorrow. That's the Christmas peace. You thought it was going to be something like everyone forgives each other, huh? You thought that. No, 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 no. It's not Disney. We're talking the, you know, Pax Romana type of peace, enforced peace. That's Christmas peace. I'm not sure that's what the angels meant when they told the shepherds peace on earth, but they did declare a peace. And I believe they declared it with some significant authority. And peace, peace that's backed up by some serious big guns is a central part of the Christmas season. Now, if you were to look at Luke chapter 1, and the prophecy of Zechariah, speaking about John the Baptist, and then talking about the one whom John would announce, uh, you would read this verse, you'd say, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And in what may be the most famous Christmas passage of the Old Testament and the inspiration for our own Christmas decor, thank you, Robin, Isaiah says, unto us a child is born, Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Yeah. And on week one of Advent, when we considered the Old Testament prophets and their hope for the coming Messiah, we read from Micah chapter 5. It's one of the prophets that Matthew quotes from. And Micah prophesied about the one who would come out of Bethlehem, who would be from ancient of days, who would rule like a shepherd. And he says in Micah 5 verse 5, and this one shall be peace. He is peace. And it seems like it's this verse, he shall be, this one shall be peace. It seems like it's this verse, or at least the concept that Paul has in mind when he writes Ephesians chapter 2 verses 13 through 18, which I've given you plenty of time to turn to, so you should be there by now. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read it to you now. <clears throat> it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. It is right and it is fitting that today, in our last week before we celebrate the miraculous incarnation of God himself, that we consider this gift of peace. And as Paul describes this peace as a bringing near those who were far off, each one of us can personally rejoice that the God of peace has come and given us access to the Father by one spirit. That's your testimony. There are, of course, different kinds of peace in Scripture. Uh, if you've been here for any length of time, you've probably heard me talk about those different kinds of peace. We spent like two years in Ephesians, so you've certainly had a chance to hear about it. Uh, and, you know, there, there's the peace with God that we as sinners need for our survival past the short term. <laughs> there's the peace of God that guards our hearts. And then there's peace between people. There's uh, peace among men. 
And Paul blends at least two of these kinds of peace in this Ephesians passage, and we certainly see more than one kind of peace being preached to the shepherds who watch their flocks by night. The birth of God is announced, a Savior who will, as Joseph was told, save his people from their sins. That's how peace with God is accomplished, salvation from our sins. We cannot have peace with God until that which makes us enemies of God is dealt with. But as we saw last week when we talked about these shepherds, these gainfully employed homeless men out in the fields, they were on the fringes of society and were brought near not only to God himself in a manger, the incarnate deity, but also into the social circle of a family. A dividing wall of hostility, to use Paul's words, had been brought down when the shepherds showed up. The shepherds experienced a a peace on earth, not only because they saw the face of the one who had authority to forgive sins, but because they felt the warmth of acceptance and the joy of good news. The shepherds were literally brought in from the cold. They were literally called out of darkness. They were watching their flocks by night. Remember, it's dark at night. Into light. They were called out of darkness into light, both the heavenly light of an angelic choir and whatever soft, gentle light Joseph could put together near the manger. Our God, who is called the God of peace at least three times in the New Testament, declares peace, makes peace, announces peace, gives peace. And that looks like the drawing near of the outsider, giving access by one spirit, bringing near those who are far off. Let's look at Ephesians 2 again and see that what the shepherds experienced that night was still something the apostles were reveling in decades later. And the good tidings of great joy that will be for all people. That was still the gospel that Paul and Peter and the other apostles were preaching. Verse 13 of Ephesians 2, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Paul says that the drawing near of those who are far off in Christ is the peace of God being made real. The peace of God is the bringing near of those who are far off. And he does this through a person. He himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Now, I mentioned, you know, I mentioned three kinds of peace. Peace with God, peace of God, uh, peace between people. To say Jesus is our peace, we can mean any of those things. He is responsible for all three kinds of peace. He is the one who makes peace with the Father. He is our priest and mediator, the one who brings sinners near, the means by which a prodigal is welcomed home. The peace on earth that the angels announced to the shepherds could only come if man were put into right relationship with God, and this cannot be done apart from Christ, who is our peace. Now, if we were to understand peace in that second term, in the, in the, in the, not, it's not just warm fuzzies, but it's still, it's the part that you feel in your heart, the peace of God that rules your heart and mind, the sigh that God allows you to heave, knowing that he is God and he's got you. That peace, well, that's still Jesus. Same peace, that peace still has a first name, it's Jesus. Um, the, the, the verse in Ephesians about Christ being our peace still makes sense. It's Christ, a personal relationship with him, a close, intimate understanding of him, gives peace that defeats anxiety. Knowing Jesus himself is the answer to ungodly, destructive fear. And the angels announced to the shepherds joy and peace, right? But first they said, fear not, because Jesus is our peace. 
Jesus is our peace. He gives us both the peace of God and peace with God. And if you look at what Paul is writing about in Ephesians, you'll notice that he's talking about that third kind of peace more than the other two. The bringing together of opposing parties here on earth. Christ has brokered peace between former enemies. Christ is the peace between Jew and Gentile and also every other set of demographics that historically have been opposed or could possibly be opposed. In the Ephesians passage, it's Jew and Gentile. That's kind of one of Paul's main things. Like you get him talking, eventually he's going to talk about there's no Jew, no Greek, and that, that's what he loves to talk about. Um, and and those we see those two parties, Jew and Gentile, united in the Christmas story. Wise men from the East probably weren't Jewish. Okay, They knew the Jewish scriptures and the prophecies, but they weren't Jews. The shepherds were, though. And in these two classes of Christmas visitors, you also have the rich and the poor brought together, you know, who Paul calls slave and free. Christ is the focus for the rich and the poor and the Jew and the Gentile and the slave and the free and men and women. And Galatians 3.28, he says, There's neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free nor male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. It doesn't mean that these distinctions don't exist. It means that they don't matter. Every division, whether it's a matter of race, class, gender, Christ draws near to himself, yes, but also to one another. Christ brings opposites together. He brings things that are opposed to one another together. He himself is our peace, verse 14, who has made both one and broken down the middle wall of separation. We think of Christ, of course, bridging a gap between us and heaven. That's true. He tore the veil, which is his flesh, this division between man and God. That's true. But we make up a lot of other walls than just that one, don't we? There's a lot of other walls that he is more than willing to tear down. This idea of tearing down a middle wall and then making both one. You, you may think of what God says about marriage, the two shall become one flesh. This is a picture of what God does on a larger scale. He takes two opposite but complementary parts and unites them to make a glorious, complete unity. And where there was a wall, there isn't anymore. The middle wall of separation, or what the English Standard Version calls the dividing wall of hostility, it's the, the line in the sand that keeps you out and keeps me in. It's the fence between you and your grumpy neighbor, only they think you're the grumpy neighbor. Jesus is a real rabble-rouser. He knocks over fences. The first, uh, the first guy with my last name that came to the what became the United States, okay, the first tallman to move from Europe over here, got kicked out of his town for burning down fences. So I'm in a really good position to be preaching this, I think, right now. Yeah. Um, we put up walls. He takes them down. We like to categorize and over-categorize, really, in order to define ourselves as unique and different from others, or else to define ourselves as perfectly identified with whatever group we want to be in. And what we have is a wall or a fence, and we're able to say, well, you wouldn't understand that because you're like that, and I'm like this. The Jews, of course, had walls on walls on walls. <laughs> and there were so many things that set them apart, often in a good way, that would make them practically alien to a Gentile the curls, the tassels, the Sabbath, the feasts. And, and many of these things were good things that kept Israel Israel, right? But they had a negative result of creating hatred to the, of those who were outside. So that by the time Jesus comes on the scene, there were rabbis who were saying with a straight face that God had made Gentiles to keep the fires of hell burning because you got to have kindling or else you'll run out. Okay? 
They were able to talk like that because they had kept the walls up for so long, they were able to dehumanize the people who were outside of their cultural definitions. We talked about this last week with shepherds, right? There's no reason the shepherds should have been despised or anything. They hadn't committed crimes. But we, we know that they had been outsiders for so long, they'd been put behind this wall and excluded from all society, polite and otherwise. And then heaven comes and burns down these walls. Jesus came and lived as a Jew. He had the tassels. He kept the Sabbath. He celebrated the feasts. And then he sent his Jewish disciples out to make disciples, his disciples, disciples of Jesus, out of all the nations. Those are Gentiles. He broke down the wall. And in the breaking down of this wall, he's done something amazing. Verse 15 says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. That is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. He abolished enmity. Uh, that's hostility. That's the us versus them attitude, the tribalism and the prejudice. He abolishes all of that. None of that matters. Notice it doesn't say the law. It doesn't say he abolished the law. Jesus says the opposite. He came to fulfill the law, right? It says that he abolished the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That's all the stuff people added. Paul doesn't say Jesus abolished the law. Um, he uses the word commandments containing in ordinances. Um, it's, the word ordinances is translated regulations in Colossians. And it's, it's Colossians 2.20 where Jesus talks about, um, or sorry, Paul writes, says, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. It's that whole passage. He says these are things according to the commandments and doctrines of men. He says they're self-imposed religion, false humility. That's the stuff that Jesus came to abolish in order to gain our peace. How has he done so? It says he has abolished it in his flesh. Welcome back to Christmas. It is the incarnation, the enfleshing of God that we celebrate at Christmas. It's not just that a baby was born. It's that God could add humanity to his divinity and make us one with God through this miracle. It's the incarnation, the enfleshing of God that we celebrate. It is the coming of God in the flesh that we long for, we hope for during Advent. It's the incarnation that makes peace. Now there's a Christmas element to this, and there's a Good Friday element to all of this. He makes peace by bringing us to the manger, and he makes peace by bringing us to the cross. In Bethlehem, God says, I'm here. I am here with you. I've come to tabernacle with you, right? I am here, and you can be with me here. There's a real unifying power in the truth of Emmanuel, right? Emmanuel says, it is God with us. It's God saying, I am with you. And and the incarnation means this in so many ways that it had never been meant before. God saying, I am with you in the flesh. He's promising peace with him. I am bridging the gap. I am making peace with you. He is promising a reconciliation between God and man. He is declaring that God has been made flesh. And now we have a mediator who is perfectly qualified to bring us both into right relationship with each other. In becoming a child and being born in Bethlehem, God is promising goodwill towards those with whom he is pleased. It is the incarnation that the priest has come to say, draw near to God. It's possible now. Abolishing the self-imposed religion, the dividing walls of hostility, the ordinances that said, stay back, this isn't for you. 
God sent his son and said, instead, this is for you. I am for you. God became flesh and allowed the prophet Isaiah to say with what seems to be alarming audacity, unto us a child is born. And Mary says, no, me. And it's like, no, us. He is for all men. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. God says, I am here, and then calls men and women to himself, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile. Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, peace. This is the call from the Prince of Peace. We find a level ground and an equal footing at both the manger and the cross. In verse 16 of Ephesians 2, it says, And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. You know what God wants to do with those things that keep us from having peace with each other in Christ? He wants to kill those things. Putting to death the enmity. The things that prevent you from being at peace, having peace, being in right relationship with the people of God. God's attitude towards those things seems, it's a bit like Finland's Christmas laws, right? It's a little bit like the Christmas peace. Like, you want to break up the Christmas peace? You want to cause division in light of the miracle of incarnation? God can unite divinity and humanity. You cannot find two more opposite or uh, irreconcilable things. He can unite those things in himself. What walls do you think you can put up that will keep God's people from you? What enmity do you think matters that can keep his peace from ruling our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus? He puts that stuff to death in order to grant us peace. The incarnation brings God to us. The cross shows us that even if God comes to man in perfect innocence, man will find a way to push him away. But more than that, at the cross we see the power of God to defeat all that would come against his plan for peace. The angel said, peace on earth. All of humanity through all history says, nuh-uh. And then on Easter, Jesus says, yeah, no, I meant it when I said it, actually. Like, even death dies on Easter. And what we see is love and his desire for our peace at Christmas. We see it in a different kind of, with a different kind of clarity and force on Good Friday and at Easter. It is the cross where we see every possible obstacle, every division between these people, those people, us versus them, completely destroyed. If God can be united to humanity, if God can be reconciled to his murderers, there is nothing that cannot be reconciled in Christ. The Jew versus Gentile paradigm that Paul is addressing in Ephesians is a perfect kind of microcosm of the divisions we still allow to spoil our peace because their problem, as with most problems, was really theological at its root. The Jews had always said, we have God because we follow these rules. You can't have God unless you follow these rules. And then, of course, they expressed the law in these ordinances or regulations saying you can't come to God unless you wash your hands this way. They told the disciples that, remember? You can't come to God unless you wear these clothes and eat this food and don't wear those clothes and don't eat that food and make this really uncomfortable appointment with the doctor. The civil laws that God had given the people of Israel in order to give them an ethnic identity that was all their own, 
These laws were raised up to be equal with the moral laws of God's holiness. And then the civil laws were interpreted and reinterpreted to the point where the commandments of men were being taught as doctrine. That's what Jesus says in the Gospels. When Jesus abolished these ordinances, he abolished the enmity, the hostility. How? By bringing Jew and Gentile to an equal footing before the cross. At the cross, men still see their own sin, something the law was designed to do, right? We can see that at the cross. The cross shows us the righteousness and the justice of God, something sacrifices were supposed to show us. However, where the law had become understood to say, do not draw near, it had been interpreted to mean, do not draw near, the cross says, by his blood, draw near. And the Jew could no longer say, you need to eat kosher and be circumcised if you want to be right before God. No, this division was no longer necessary because the lordship of Jesus supersedes all previous loyalties. And because of what Christ has done on the cross... It's not just that the titles and identities of Jew and Gentile don't matter anymore. It's that the, the meaning they used to have are obsolete in this new economy, in this new paradigm. If you try to get to God because of your bloodline, or you say, this is how I relate to God because of my culture, or, or even because of your behavior, you're, you're trying to put a floppy disk into your iPhone, okay? Like, it's obsolete. That's the definition of obsolete. It doesn't work like that way anymore. Now, the only way to get to God is through Jesus, no matter what your religious or ethnic background. And so, whereas before you had these two camps, you had Jew and Gentile, and, and still we'll have us versus them, the people on this side of the line and the people on those side of the line. And there's people saying, we go through that door, and you go through that door, and then Jesus says, I'm the door. There's one door. It's me. And this is our way. Well, that's your way. We just do things different. Jesus says, I'm the way. I am the way. There's one way. Everyone goes through the same door and they find themselves in the same room. And what God has done is he has made one group of people where there had been two. Or to put it biblically, he has created in himself one new man from two, thus making peace. Peace on earth. Goodwill towards men. In the early church, Christians actually called themselves a third race or a new race. And God's people have always kind of liked the third way. It's like, is it this or this? And they're like, actually, Jesus. Um, and, and this is something that the Jews and Gentiles who made up the early church figured out as they were trying to define themselves as a people. You know, they recognized that they were no longer Jews or Gentiles in the way that they had been before. They were something else. The Jews who were saved realized they still had Jewish practices, customs, but they also rejected much of what had been found, what, much of what had found its way into their religion as they had known it. The laws that Jesus takes issue with that the Pharisees would spout out, right? So they hadn't rejected being Jewish, but they also didn't have any need for sacrifices anymore because of what Christ had done. So did they become Gentiles? Absolutely not. They chose the third option. They became Christians. Christian was the third option. Gentiles, Roman citizens. Upon believing in Christ, they adopted some of Jewish thought, but not the customs. They didn't start adopting all the dress code and the dietary laws or the seventh-day Sabbath. But they didn't behave like Romans anymore either. There was a whole culture there that they were leaving behind completely. So did they become Jewish? No, they chose the third option. They became part of a new race, and it's Christians. And this he has done through the cross. He has accomplished this. Christ, our peace, has accomplished this. It's meant that Jesus' prayer in John 17, 
that they all may be one. It wasn't just wishful thinking. It wasn't the kind of prayer that is prayed without any actions that follow. Jesus prayed for unity, knowing that he would accomplish this feat through his own agony. This is what he has done. The cross has given us unity, and this is a partial fulfillment of God's eternal purpose, as stated in Ephesians 1.10. It says that he might gather together in one all things in Christ. The bringing together of Jew and Gentile in the church is a preview of his ultimate work of summing up all things into Jesus Christ. He created the heavens and the earth to glorify Jesus Christ. Paul, writing to a church that lived in a world like ours that was diverse and divisive, he says that in Christ, the distinctions that prevent peace bow before Christ. You see this inscription in a number of different ways. God defying the binary divisions and offering himself as the third way. You, you think of Joshua, right, encountering the angel of the Lord before going into Canaan. And he said, oh, it's an angel. He's got a big sword. Are you with us or are you, are you for our enemies? And the Lord says, no. It's not your way versus their way. It's me. It's, my, it's me. It's my way every time. Um, you think of in the Gospels, in Luke 12, there's someone that comes to Jesus and says, hey, make my brother agree with me. We're wanting to divide the inheritance. I need you to say I'm right. And Jesus says, who appointed me judge between you? Which is a strange thought because you're like, uh, God, you're obviously the judge. But, but he's challenging this idea that's like, Jesus, you need to be on my side. And to be on my side means you're not on their side. Serve me, Lord. Be on my team against that team. And Jesus says, there's one team, and it's me. I'm the team. And you think about the last chapter of John where Jesus is talking to Peter. He's telling him, feed my sheep and follow me. And Peter, uh, wanting to draw some distinctions, categories, he looks at John and he says, well, what about him? What about that guy? And Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. And the next time we see Peter and John together, they're walking together in the hour of prayer to the temple. For all those who are following Jesus, you will see that you have been united not only with Christ, but also with all those who are following him. He has made peace among his children. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Jesus, who prays that the disciples would be one, and who chooses peace as one of the first post-resurrection words that he would speak to the disciples, tells them that his father is their father, that his God is their God. He says, access to the father. This is the culmination of the peace that Christ gives. It is the fulfillment of his dwelling with us, the Emmanuel, and the realization of his promise to be with us always, even to the end of the age. God with us. He's here. You have access to him. We even see this connection with the shepherds, right? They are outside in the dark, in the cold, and the angel says, peace on earth. And for them, that means being welcomed into the warmth, into the light, into the presence of the Christ child. Access is what they are given when peace is announced. Access to God. It's always, it's always there when the gospel is preached. Jesus says, I'm the door. Doors are access points. It's how you get into the house. Jesus says, I am the way. That, again, speaks of access, and our access is through him, that's Jesus, by one spirit to the Father. You see in this verse, the entire trinity at work drawing men to God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit drawing you. And, this is really Paul's point, 
He's also drawing that other person who's very different from you. They are being drawn by this triune God into fellowship with divinity. He is bringing you and people who are your apparent opposites through the same door that is Christ into fellowship with God. God will bring both Jew and Gentile to himself, reconciled through Christ. <clears throat> Borrowing from the Colossians 2 passage we read earlier, God will bring both slave and free through Christ to heaven, through the same door. God will bring men and women, parents and children, rich and poor. All are given access by one spirit, and all are given access to the same destination. It is union with God that we're after. This reconciliation, this bringing of peace, is both vertical and horizontal. We are reconciled to God, this direction, and we are reconciled with one another. And that horizontal peace, that's something that can be hard. For some of you, it's extra hard at the holidays. And it's why the Bible says love one another so many times with such emphatic clarity. But here's what you need to hear. If we're going to love people as we ought we need to see all other people as equally sinful with us, equal with us in our separation from God, equal with us in our need for a Savior, and equal with us in our savability. That's not a word, but I just used it anyway. <laughs> equal footing at the manger, equal footing at the cross. Anyone that you are opposed to, and I don't care what you're fighting about, I don't care why you don't want to spend time with them at Christmas, Christ has reconciled us in himself. This is his ministry. And it's a ministry that he has handed down to his disciples. We are given a ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5. Listen, the, the cross is inclusively exclusive. And so is the manger. It is exclusive in that it is the only way. Unless you come to the Father through Jesus, you'll never get there. It is exclusive. But it is inclusive in this way. Everyone's invited. Anyone can come to Jesus. It's not peace to the shepherds. It's peace on earth. Christ has come to reconcile, to give peace. He has accomplished this in his incarnation, in his flesh. He has accomplished this in his death, in the tearing of his flesh, the veil that we pass through to enter into the presence of God. We benefit from it when we meet him at the manger and at the cross. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we love that you are so kind to us and that you would give us uh, such a, a rich and multifaceted peace. Um, we love that you have given us access to the Father. You've given us the same relationship as children of God. You've given us the right to become children of God as we receive you, Jesus. I pray that the peace of God would guard every heart here and that the peace that you have made in yourself would be ours, that it would belong to this church, that our love for one another and unity with each other would be seen as the answer to your prayer, our great high priest. We love you, Jesus. Amen. 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 Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. 
Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent. There'll be people up front praying with you. Uh, if anyone would like prayer, the rest of you, I'll see you on Christmas. Eve. <laughs> Hmm? Anyone who'd like to. After New Year's. Okay. Let's do after New Year's. New Year's Day is a Sunday, so that's still. <laughs> Thank you.